Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to episode three of Hidden in Plain Sight, the HIPS podcast. I'm Julian Ng, your host, and with me is Peter Hodges, dramatist, scholar, and author of Marlowe's Complaint, a unique history of Christopher Marlowe, the famed 16th century poet and playwright. Together, we are investigating the mysterious report of Marlowe's death in Datford in May 1593. If you are joining us, you are probably intrigued by this whole idea and are probably open to our hypothesis that Christopher Marlowe did not die, but rather escaped with the help of some of the most powerful people in England. What is more, we are investigating the possibility that Marlowe lived long after 1593, continuing his career as a poet, playwright, and intelligence operative for the English crown. Today, we will continue to investigate the trail of clues which, for over 400 years, has been hidden in plain sight. Peter, welcome to episode three, or as I call it, the story behind the story. Hello, Julian. Peter, I would like us to explore what happened that night in Datford in a bit more detail. But before we go further, I want to circle back to a question I have from our previous episode and our discussion of Marlowe's lesser known career as an intelligence operative. Can you bear with me? Oh, of course. What's your question? Well, you described for us several documented instances of Marlowe's involvement in the Walsingham Intelligence Network. There was the delay in his Cambridge degree, which the Privy Council resolved by sending a letter to the university deans advising them of his service to the Crown. Also, you described his activities as a kind of watchman in Lord Strange's theatrical company and investigating his cousin's underground mercenaries on the continent. Both of these would appear to be well documented. But in the case of his tutoring the beautiful Arbella Stewart, who was second in line to the throne, we only have her grandmother's letter describing a Mr. Morley. Can we be on firmer ground with this? I mean, is Morley Marlowe or Marlowe Morley? How, how do we know that there wasn't someone else with a similar name who might have done this? I mean, do you have any other sources to verify that this remarkable assignment was given to our one and only Christopher Marlowe? Absolutely. This question was settled by Peter Ferry in his 2012 Hoffman Prize-winning essay, in which he tracked down every person who could possibly fit the grandmother's description and concluded that it could only be Marlowe. Bess Hardwick, in her letter to Lord Burley, described a tutor with the name Morley, 
who started tutoring Arbella in 1589, shortly after he left the university. Ferry literally tracked down the records for every graduate of either Oxford or Cambridge for that period with a name that could be Morley or anything remotely like it, including 10 years of records for each person. He then followed all the available reports of their movements and was able to show that the only person who fit the description who was in proximity to Arbella on the multiple occasions when she visited family in London was Christopher Marlowe. I might add that Morley is the name used by the Privy Council in its letter to the Cambridge deans, and no one disputes that that refers to Marlowe. Burley was part of the Privy Council, so Bess Hardwick is just being consistent in her letter with the same spelling, and both letters involved Burley directly. Huh, that is convincing. Clearly, Marlowe was not just any agent. He was very important to Burley and his network. Okay, let's return to Datford. We've already established that the situation was somewhat suspect. The coroner's report states that Marlowe and his fellow friends had been eating, drinking, and walking in the garden that day. And then the report provides details of the dispute, which resulted in the claim that Marlowe was stabbed by Ingram Fraser in self-defense. I mean, <laughs> I don't know about you, but it would seem rather strange that such a pleasant day would end with a murder with the sudden knife above the eye, would it not? One of the things that's been presumed is that they were there waiting for something or someone else. But Coroner Danby never asks, and no answer is given about the purpose of the meeting. Now, this is a tavern near a wharf on the Thames. It's like spending eight hours at Heathrow, and you don't go anywhere, and you don't meet or have plans to meet anyone who is going or is gone anywhere. So we're left with that. Now, if the purpose of all of this was, as some have speculated, to eliminate an individual who maybe knew too much and maybe was untrustworthy, then you have to ask yourself the question, why did it take them so long? Was this eight hours that they spent more in the nature of an interrogation? Was there more going on? Whatever you're trying to make of this situation, there are a lot of questions that arise merely from the amount of time that they are said by themselves to have spent, and there are no satisfactory answers for this very obvious question. Quite. Now, Ingram Fraser, the man who claimed to have stabbed Marlowe, you said he was also a business agent for the Walsinghams real estate or something? I mean, was this collecting rents or was there more to it than that? Fraser had a shady side and Walsingham was involved in that too. It was one of these side deals that probably led, helped lead Hodson to discover the coroner's report. Fraser and Nicholas Skears, who was a self-described instrument in loan sharking, worked some kind of scheme against a young Drew Woodliffe who signed a bond to repay an original loan of £34 
at compound interest equaling 200 pounds. This was less than a month after the incident at Deptford. The beneficiary of the bond, believe it or not, was Thomas Walsingham. Wow. But to my mind, Thomas had inherited his Scatbury estate four years before that. Why would he want to get involved in loan sharking when he was already wealthy? I don't know. He never really had any anticipation of inheriting Scadbury. You know, he was the youngest of four sons, and one by one, the other three died on him while he was still working in Sir Francis' intelligence network. Without a steady source of income, he would have been open to all sorts of opportunities. So when he became landed, I'm guessing it took a while for him to change his spots. I'm guessing perhaps his marriage to Audrey had something to do with that. That's possible, too. But long before that, according to David Riggs in his book, The World of Christopher Marlowe, Thomas had been Robert Poley's handler during the Babington plot against Mary, Queen of Scots. He took reports from Poley on his progress with Babington and gave him the orders his uncle issued. By the time he gets to Deptford, Poley had been associated with Walsingham for almost 10 years. He would not have been there without Walsingham's knowledge, and Walsingham would not have sent him for no purpose. There's one, there's one other thing that stands out about this. Robert Poley was married to Tom Watson's sister. Tom Watson was the man who defended Marlowe in a sword fight in Hog Lane against William Bradley, who Watson killed. There's a lot of water over the dam between 1589 and 1593, but Watson was one of Walsingham's best friends. He wrote a memorial poem to Sir Francis when he died in 1590. For Walsingham then to lure Marlowe, who had been keeping at his Scadbury estate, into an assassination at Deptford, it would have been one of the most cold-blooded killings in the entire period. I agree. But what about Dame Eleanor Bull? Was she also connected to Walsingham? No, she was connected to Lord Burley. She was grandniece of Blanche Perry, chief gentlewoman of the Privy Chamber, who was also Lord Burley's cousin. As for the Bull House, it was situated adjacent to the Muscovy Company Wharf. The Muscovy Company was the first chartered corporation in England, and Lord Burley was one of the chief shareholders, along with Sir Francis Walsingham. The company's business was export and import back and forth to Russia and North Sea whale oil by way of the Thames in Deptford. So if your Lord Burley had any intentions of assisting somebody's surreptitious movements, he could easily do that out of Dame Bull's household, adjacent to the wharf for the Muscovy Company's ships, which he owned. That's all just fact. You don't have to know that anything else happens. You just establish that this is who these men were and where they were when all of this happens. It's very, very odd, very suspicious, and make of it what you will. Even those who endorse Coroner Danby's report still have a lot of questions to answer.
Yeah, you know, I was wondering about that. He's the sort of dog that didn't bark, isn't he? I mean, of all people, he should be the one person most concerned about Fries's improbable story. Instead, he just writes it down, seals it, and walks away. Surely he knew more than he let on. I think he was there primarily to make sure that a local magistrate didn't go sniffing around. He may not have known any of the men directly involved, but he worked for Lord Burley. The whole report reads like a staged performance. Imagine 12 men brought into the chamber where the murder had been committed. They are sworn in, and then the body with its grotesque stab wound is carried in and displayed before them. Danby takes the testimony from Freiser, and out of consideration for the jurors, who are probably still in shock, takes quick confirmations from Poli and Skiers. The body is carried out, and he closes his report. You can be certain that everybody in that room was very happy to go on about their business. We've mentioned Lord Burley a few times. You think that he had a role in staging Marlowe's escape from Datford. Now, it seems to me that for such a powerful man to go to such lengths for one simple playwright is a bit much. Is there something, something that Marlowe had done or was doing for the Lord Burley that would have necessitated such actions? What's really missing from this story, from the whole story, is motive. Obviously, Ingram Freiser did not kill Marlowe by accident. When all the people involved are professionals working for the same man or the same collection of men, the idea of a sudden passionate argument over a bill is absurd. On the other hand, the idea of a contract killing carried out in this fashion is equally absurd. Better to stab him in the back and disappear. And even if we agree that this was faked, still, why was it necessary? Why do all this? Some say he was in danger because he was an atheist or that he was accused of atheism or something like that. But that's not a motive. There were plenty of atheists around. There were those who accused Marlowe of making atheist statements. But is that enough, not in my view, for someone to trick him into exposing himself and then murder him? He wasn't planning, nor was he in a position to plan any kind of coup or threat to the crown. So why kill him? Or for that matter, why stage a killing in order to cover up an escape? What was the danger that he had to escape? Well, we also talked about Archbishop Whitgift, rounding up Puritans who had accused the Church of corruption. What about him? I think all the evidence the council was gathering against Marlowe seemed to point in an anti-Anglican direction. Would Archbishop Whitgift himself be a danger to Marlowe? I'm sure he was, but, but, what gave Whitgift the scent? He already had as many Puritans under lock and key as he needed to make his point against them. He'd hung a few. Why go after Marlowe? 
What was the thing that suddenly made Marlowe a target? We talked about this. The Dutch church libel? Right. And who was responsible for the Dutch church libel, in my opinion? Well, according to you, it was the Earl of Essex. According to Charles Nickel. I'm just agreeing with him. The thing I think Nickel got wrong was that he believed Essex was trying to attack Sir Walter Raleigh by attacking Marlowe, who was supposedly his friend, Raleigh's friend. But Raleigh was already in disgrace by then after marrying Elizabeth Rockmorton against the Queen's wishes. <laughs> well, it sounds like we're going into the school of night theory or territory. You're saying that you think the Earl of Essex got Marlowe in trouble with Archbishop Whitgift. But why? He certainly would not have cared if Marlowe was an atheist. No, no. I think it had to do with the competition between Burley and Essex. And that started long before any of this and got really complicated after Walsingham died and Burley needed to find money to run the intelligence service. Hold on. I know we talked about this in our last episode, but can you remind me again why the Earl of Essex was in competition with Lord Burley? So, as Secretary of State, Lord Burley was one of, if not the chief, advisor to the Queen. Basically, he got the last word about everything. The Earl of Essex was younger than Burley, but very ambitious. He wanted to replace Burley as the Queen's chief advisor. One of the ways Lord Burley maintained his position was through his control of the intelligence network set up and left for him by Sir Francis Walsingham. Essex had set about challenging Burley by creating his own intelligence network and in some cases hiring some of Burley's agents out from under him. This was a very active and constantly involved evolving battlefield. So while Burley had the advantage of prominence and established position, Essex had considerable power because he was able to outspend Burley. I always thought Lord Burley was one of the richest men in England. Yes, but he was also very cheap. And don't forget, in those days, there was nothing in the Queen's budget to cover intelligence expenses. When Sir Francis built his intelligence service, he had to go out and basically buy the information from the people who had it. This created a web of relationships and people that could he could depend on to do various types of work for him. But ultimately, he had to pay for it out of his own pocket. When he died, he asserted in his will that the crown owed him something like 5,000 pounds, which is conceivably well over a million dollars today. Burley, upon assuming control of the operation, could see that in a war of attrition, Essex would always have the advantage of being landed and collecting rents while Burley would have to raise capital on the market, buying and selling and so on. Burley had made his way up as a very poor man into the top of government, but he had to scrape and fight for it. And more recently, he'd had to hold on to it while Bloody Mary staged the resurgence of the Catholics. By then, he was head of the intelligence services, 
And he had a challenger who, let us not forget, Essex was preferred by Walsingham, Sir Francis. He wanted his daughter to marry Essex, and she did. So what does Burley do? Does he have Marlowe's spy on him? Is, is that why Essex hated him? No. I think Marlowe comes into this because Burley decided that if he was going to try to compete with the second richest man in England, then he should get the richest man in England on his side. So, in 1590, even before Walsingham dies, he's very ill, and Burley is making overtures to the grandfather of the Earl of Southampton, the richest man in England, with the aim of marrying him to his granddaughter, Elizabeth de Vere. Now, this is the daughter of the Earl of Oxford, right? Correct. Marlowe was brought in to help Burley convince the Earl that the marriage would be a good thing. <laughs> and how was he ever going to do that? Are you saying that in addition to everything else, he's a marriage broker too? No, but he was a pretty good poet. In 1590, the Earl of Southampton was all of 17 years old, and he happened to be the ward of Lord Burley because his parents died when he was not even 10 years old. Southampton possessed a fortune greater than the Earl of Essex, greater than any other single individual in all of England. Burley conceived the notion that this young fellow should marry his granddaughter. And we have a note in his personal diary, Burley's diary, when Southampton was going to turn 17. He made a note about when this was going to happen, October 6th, 1590. Right after that, he starts communicating with the families about the marriage proposal. We have letters to this effect back and forth. But the boy didn't want to do it. His answer was like, I'm rich, I'm handsome, I'm 17. Your granddaughter might be beautiful, but I'm not marrying anybody. Burley, however, is not willing to give up easily, and he decided to commission some poets to plead his case. One of these people he commissioned was Edward Clapham, his personal secretary. Clapham wrote a poem titled Narcissus, based on the Greek shepherd who was so in love with his own reflection that he fell into a lake and drowned. This was dedicated to Southampton on the occasion of his 18th birthday in October 1591. The story of Narcissus is not exactly complimentary to an already vain 18-year-old who rejected an arranged marriage proposal. It's more like a retort, not a first proposal. So what was the first proposal? What was the first poem? Burley had better poets than Clapham in his employ, including the most popular playwright and poet of his generation, Christopher Marlowe. If you want to make a gift to somebody, a totally unique gift that expressed the level of your power and influence and magnificence, you might ask Marlowe to dedicate one of his plays to Southampton. Or you might ask him to write a poem. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of speculation to me. What evidence do you have that Marlowe was ever commissioned by Burley or that he ever wrote anything of that kind? 
We know that Marlowe was writing those kinds of things at the time. He translated multiple poems by Ovid, the Amors. He wrote The Passionate Shepherd. You know the line, come live with me and be my love, which was the most popular poem in print at the time. And he wrote several sonnets that found their way into Romeo and Juliet, the play he and Tom Watson, I think, were working on in 1591. Watson was one of the first to write English sonnets, and he had published a collection dedicated to the Earl of Oxford in 1590, and he clearly had a lot of influence on Marlowe. Of all the people who could do the job, the one who would impress Southampton the most, and the one whom Burley could control, Marlowe would have to be his first choice. The next thing you know, Southampton receives a gift of 17 poems on his 17th birthday, altogether about 240 lines worth, all of them promoting the notion that he should marry and have children. Unfortunately, it didn't convince Southampton to marry Elizabeth de Vere. Then Burley had Clapham write Narcissus as gift number two, which Southampton liked even less. I'm speculating here. I don't know what Southampton really thought, but he didn't get married. <laughs> That's all very interesting, but it all takes place in 1590 and 91. Why would Essex care about any of that? Because in 1593, Essex apparently thought Burley was coming back to make one more attempt at Southampton and that he was using Marlowe once again to do it. For a year and a half, Burley had left Southampton more or less alone. There are no more letters to his grandfather and no more poetic gifts trying to convince him to marry. Burley seems to have understood that he shouldn't press the issue. And anyway, he wouldn't have to give up his status as Southampton's guardian until he turned 21 in October 1594. So Burley lets Southampton have his fun. Meanwhile, Southampton is getting closer to Essex, who, like Southampton, was raised in Burley's household as his ward. The last thing Burley would want would be for Southampton to fall under the influence of the older Essex, first because it would take away from him a reliable source of capital, but also because that capital could then be used by Essex to further threaten Burley's position. By the same token, Essex would not want Southampton joining Burley's camp, and he was very attentive to young Southampton to keep him out of it. Then, in early 1593, Burley was apparently getting impatient and seemed to be taking another run at Southampton, but this time Essex seems to have caught wind of it. On April 14th, 1593, a new poem, unattributed, is registered with the stationer, Venus and Adonis. At the same time, Marlowe was working on his own poem, Hero and Leander. Every scholar who has ever studied these two poems has noticed their striking resemblance to each other. Most of these same scholars claim that Marlowe's poem was being read in draft, by other poets who admired it. So it's no stretch to say that if Essex read the stationer's copy of Venus and Adonis, which he could have done if his intelligence network alerted him to the unattributed manuscript, 
He might very well have thought it was written by Christopher Marlowe as a gift intended for Southampton, because that's what it was, a gift written in the style of Marlowe, intended for Southampton, author unknown. The next thing you know, the Dutch church libel is posted, May 5, 1593. On May 20th, Marlowe is questioned by the Privy Council, then set free on daily report, only to end up in Deptford 10 days later. I have to admit, that's a compelling argument and certainly seems to implicate Essex as author of the entire affair. Even if Marlowe did not escape Deptford, it would explain a lot. But you think he survived. Peter, I... Oops, I think we've run overtime in this episode. When we return, I want you to explain why you think Marlowe survived and what you think happened at Mrs. Bull's tavern and where Marlowe might have gone after that. I look forward to it. Ha, so do I. Those of you who want to jump ahead, you would do well to pick up a copy of Marlowe's Complaint, the book that reveals the rest of this incredible and fascinating story. You can check out Chapter 1 online for free. It's a fun read, and I highly recommend it, of course, but then I wrote it.